Season three, season three is cooking. We are here on the Sopranos podcast for season three, episode three, Blackbird. Let this be a lesson to you. A man honors his debts. This quote was spoken by Johnny Boy Soprano to his 11-year-old son, Tony, in this episode, season three, episode three, of The Sopranos, entitled Fortunate Son, written by Todd A. Kessler and directed by Henry J. Bronckteen. So, off the bat, this is, to me, guys, this episode feels like season three kind of starting in earnest. Episode one, we had that kind of interesting, oddball Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood, as we discussed, entertaining, but a little unusual structured in the way they presented it. Episode two is the Livia is dead episode. Nancy Marchand had passed away. They had to address it in the show. Not that it isn't important, but I feel like this episode kind of says, okay, season three, we're going now. Now, now, and this felt like a return to normalcy of sorts, although it's not a normal episode. It's a great episode. But it felt like a return to normalcy for the Sopranos universe. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And let's go around and talk about your first impressions. I, I couldn't say it better, Chris. This actually feels like what would be or perhaps should be the first episode of a season. We are throwing such curveballs with the high concept Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood and then the following up with, with of course, the passing of Nancy Marchand and, and the episode, the, the series response to that. This seems to be the starting point of a lot of plots that we're going to obviously follow up on through the season, and in discussing this episode, I think we're going to end up discussing it as if it's more of a premiere than anything else. There's just a lot that is started here or furthered in a significant way, and we're really starting to see who the focal points of this season are going to be. We're going to get Ralph Cifaretto writ, writ large here, um, you know, uh, Jackie Jr., uh, you know, these these things that are, are going to progress with us are, are now much more apparent in this episode, which is delivered with, as ne- is necessitated, much more urgency than the first two episodes. There's a pace. Yeah. That's well said. I feel similarly, and I think one of the things that I love about this episode, getting into something new with Chris, I, I think Imperioli just does great work here, and... This is a great Imperioli episode. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, he and Paulie, some great scenes together, we'll, we'll get into those for sure. And it functions well as a, as a story, as you guys said, really getting us into this world, and now we're seeing some of the trajectory here. It also works as a subgenre piece in a way about gangsterism, because for me anyway, just speaking for myself, leading up to this time, I I liked mob stuff and crime movies and crime stories, but I didn't study much about it. So basically the concept of being, the mythos of being made in the Mm -hmm. mob, to me basically came from Goodfellas, which meant that you were untouchable. You were like a real gangster, but of course in Goodfellas it's a trick, and um, the character that kills Imperioli's character in Goodfellas gets shot in the face, um, which then paints how the characters perceive what's maybe happening here. But then to do an episode where a guy gets made and it sucks and it does, and you're just a cog in a machine mm. is so interesting and ironic and, of course, funny at times, but um, gets into some real issues about these gangsters. I also just have to do a shout-out. I went back and watched some scenes from Down Neck, mm. which is the spiritual cousin yeah. to this episode. I have to say the production value here leaves it in the dust. The way that this is shot, the way that these flashbacks are put together, I don't know where they got this 11-year-old Tony, but the way that impressionability is painted on his face is really... Great casting. uh, It's quite something. Great kid. Yeah, and it adds up to a great hour. 
Um, and by the way, these Sopranos just take things off of people when they want them. Mm. I'm sure you guys noticed that. Um, <laughs> just body part, yeah. yoink. Um, <laughs> v- very odd, very funny in some ways, and dark. Uh, and it, yeah, it just it added up to a terrific hour. And the, the last scene is just a stunner. We're going to get there. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's quite something, this episode. I agree. It, and not to knock down Neck, of course, but I'm sure the show at this point, it's the biggest thing of all time. I'm sure their budget was mm-hmm. way jacked up so they could make those older scenes, give it a little bit more visual panache than even they had in uh, previous. But there's a lot going on here. There are at least uh, five or six individual story threads. Like you said, Jordan, this has a very premiere-ish feel, even though it's not the technical premiere, but it, it does kind of launch all of our stories in their, into their trajectory for the rest of the season. We meet at least three new characters this episode we're going to talk about. Uh, so it's a good time. But I love the way the episode starts because you're immediately thrown into it. You're at home with Chris and Adriana. They're having a relaxing night. They're, she's making them cheese dogs. <laughs> and he looks like he's about to, you know, do probably relax, do some drugs, watch TV. And he gets the call. This is an interesting moment in the life of any gangster. I'm forgetting the name of his book, but I, I've mentioned the actual guy before. There's a mob guy who went to prison and got out of the mob. He didn't betray anybody or go into witness protection, but he just got out. He left. He was able to successfully leave the life. Name of Michael Franzis. He's got a great YouTube channel where he talks a lot about a lot of his experiences in the mob. His father was in the mob. And this fear you have on the day you're going to get made where you're just kind of told, hey, get in a car, and you're not told where you're going. That's how they also kill you in the mob. You're just told when they when you, somebody higher up than you says, hey, get in, you get in. 24 hours a day, you're on call. The family, Tony even says it during the making ceremony. This family comes first before everything. That's true. That is said. Everything in the making ceremony that they did is has been described by people who have come out of the mob, and it seems like it's 100% accurate. The burning of the saint, the blood. But the point is, like, Chris being afraid is not unjustified because you could be getting promoted or you could be getting murdered and you just have to get in the car either way. But let's talk about this opening sequence. Chris finds out. Adriana's a little disappointed. Their night's ruined, but then she's excited for him. There's a sweetness to this scene where she's, you know, it almost seems like a normal thing is happening. That a couple is like, yeah, you're giving notice, he tells her. So let's talk about this and up through the making ceremony uh, to the bird, which we named our episode after. Yeah, Paul already alluded to this, but I just want to say that the show does not lend any kind of um, grandioseness to this mm. uh, process, right? It all seems sort of seedy and disappointing. Yeah. Um, Meet him at Models in half an hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, they're, they're having like this quiet night in, and honestly, after having seen the whole making ceremony, I was kind of like, maybe he just should have stayed home. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they call him up, get my suit together. Okay, great. He looks nice. They meet in an ugly parking lot, uh, go sit in front, and you're like, oh, shit, is something going to happen here? And it's impossible to divorce Michael Imperioli from Goodfellas right. Association, right? So there, there's that already before the viewer. Yeah, it's baked in. Yeah. They get to the making ceremony, which happens in this ugly basement, right? It's not even a private ceremony because someone else is being made at the same time mm-hmm. who we don't know. Some other fucking mook. This we is a know. character, he is credited as Eugene Ponacorvo. Up to this, this is a new character for the show. Up to this point, we've not been introduced to him. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Bacala, as far as the viewer's concerned, it's just some other tall guy. Yeah. Bacala is futzing with the lights, uh, you know, to, to <laughs> stupid effect. Um, Finish I wrote, up over there. <laughs> yeah, right. I wrote down in my notes that 
Tony is uttering these very important words. It might be the most important words that Christopher will ever hear in his life. You know, it's basically swearing him into the family. But the way Tony speaks these lines, and, and we know that Tony is capable of, of great eloquence, they're not particularly eloquent. It almost sounds like he's kind of like, oh, this is what I heard. This is what I was told. The words are doubtlessly important mm-hmm. and have enormous gravity, but they're not that well-spoken. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like, uh, this and this and this and this is what will happen. Yeah. I don't know. It, it lacked a certain sense of the actual ceremony of what was happening. To give and, another Goodfellas quote, it was like real greaseball shit. It wasn't, you yeah, know. Yeah. It doesn't feel that special. And then, uh, yeah, let's let's address the fact that Chris is not even in the moment. He's having a hard time being present because there's the creepiest fucking looking bird ever. Yeah. This black bird <laughs> tapping on the window, the bird of ill omen, yeah. right, that is knocking on the glass. And then, in the back of your mind, maybe you're watching this scene and you're thinking, okay, this is a nasty place, but maybe they'll go someplace nice after to celebrate this. No, there's just like two naked women just kind of grinding on each other and there's food just right around and it's just gross. The Tony, thing is Tony's gross. standing like right next to them eating, watching the yeah. lesbian show is very funny. Yeah, yeah meat and sexuality. Yeah. Um, going right into it. Um, I was making cheese dogs for you. <laughs> I think they just invited two strippers into sa- into uh, Vesuvio. Vesuvio. Yeah, they closed. Right? Oh, okay. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they like got the back room at Vesuvio. Yeah, I mean, you guys are right on the the way that this is set up is very deliberate. It is ironic. It is fun. Um, maybe kind of like the executive game. Instead of glamour, they're going for privacy, of course. But yeah, this basement is seedy. It doesn't look good. The bird is is very odd, and something to me does feel like it's tracking something where Christopher, much like he had to make a movie out of his life, needs to make something out of this because so much of the actual experience is fundamentally disappointing. It's not really living up to any kind of grandeur. Mm. So then I think he gets distracted by the bird and it has some context, but as we've said, it's an ill omen. It's not good. And all of a sudden, what he's put all this energy into suddenly has the 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 air sucked out of it for a moment and then i think a lot of the the rest of the episode as he says he's chasing it mm. rather than making money uh so it yeah it all adds up to a very odd um again like i think it's a funny ironic opening in spite of the dark stuff because of the expectation of moving up in the world and then it's kind of flat yeah there's a just a, like many times in The Sopranos, this happens time and time again. They go to Italy, whatever. It's something that's been hyped up, and it does not quite meet expectation. There's a romanticism put on it for them from the movies or whatever, but ultimately, yeah, it's a dingy basement. Could be like you know somebody's aunt's basement, you know. <laughs> so what's up with the blackbird? Well, or the I, I guess it's a crow. I don't really know. Uh, certainly not a good omen. I was taught, and they mentioned this in the episode. When a bird flies into your house, yeah, that is an ill omen. Adriana right? tells him that, uh, moment and, of and panic she, she actually re- says that exactly. She says it's an omen of death. My grandparents used to say that. I remember that. I don't know if that's just an Italian thing, by the way. I think mm. that might be a, like a whole European thing. I think that that's a multicultural thing. Mm. The bird seems to be tapping on the glass to almost get Chris's attention, and it's not behaving in any normal way, right? The bird is not trying to eat a worm. It's not trying to, you know, it's not yeah. doing anything even bird-like. And it's enough to distract Chris, and he's looking at it beyond the glass, and then it's just simply gone. What I think disturbed me most about the bird, other than that it's really ugly, it's a fucked up looking bird, is that it's almost like, did I read this? I don't know if this was an individual reading, like, get out of there. Tap, tap, tap on the glass, get out of there. Yeah. 
right? That that's that's how it felt to me. It, it does feel that way. It's absolutely Chris's perspective. It could have just been my experience of this isolated watch. I've watched this episode more than once in my life. Yeah. My reading was, I mean, certainly a blackbird is and in just very basic folklore. It seems like an omen of death. Mm-hmm. But my reading of it was honestly, this doesn't mean anything. Okay. It's, it's a bird. Um, and, but also... Well, that, but that's not... To, to, I want not to clarify for you, you're a very eloquent and intelligent human being, but I think you mean, doesn't mean anything in the larger sense. It means something to Chris. It means something to Chris because Chris needs to make something of his life in his own mind. Right. And this imagery lends itself to that, even if it's an omen of death. Mm. Um, I think I wrote this down. I'm like, I'm usually not on Adriana's side when it comes to interpretation, but it's a coincidence. Let it go. Mm. You gotta, because another thing that Chris realizes in this episode is being made doesn't mean that you've now come into this fullness. It actually operationally means you're a bit more aware of how you're a cog in a machine. Mm. Another great gangster movie, I think, is Donnie Brasco which is more about the underlings in the mob. And yep. Pacino's reflection in that movie is this guy we just whacked. What am I going to say about it? I'm a spoke in a wheel. And so was he, and so are you. I think that's where Chris comes in. And as if that's not enough, the ending points it out because Chris makes a payment to Polly at the end. Polly goes and makes the payment to Tony. You're just one of many guys. Mm. Yeah. In an episode where there's a big theme and... and presence of gambling it was a good reminder to me that this entire lifestyle is a gamble absolutely gambling is a superstitious thing there's superstitious people they gamble on something because they stepped in something or found something in their pocket or the name was somebody's middle name that was back in their family like you know people who bet on stuff are very superstitious and to have an omen of bad luck kind of looming over chris is very much a say, kind of to me suggesting to Chris, you know, this is one bet that is this this lifestyle is a bad bet, and you may not get get out of it intact. Uh, yeah, I I don't disagree with Paul. Paul, I, I think you're right in saying we could just take this as he needs it to mean something, therefore yeah. it does, right? I think that's a totally totally valid interpretation, uh, because otherwise, what a disappointing thing this was, right? Let him at least take that away from it. Mm. But I, I, I don't know. I, I feel maybe I've been conditioned by all movies, all literature, whatever. To just, maybe I'm searching for the meaning here because I want it to mean something too. That could be the case. I just, uh, I've also considered, and this really goes more with what Paul is saying, maybe there was no bird there. It's totally Chris's perspective. Yeah. Maybe only he saw it. Yeah. We could allow that as a reading, couldn't mm-hmm. we? Mm-hmm. That's true. That's there's, a a, there's a part of, yeah, that, that is a very accurate... Uh, now, like interpretation, it's a it's a valid interpretation. Right. Also, because it's behaving like no bird I have ever seen. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not doing bird like things. It's almost looking at him. It's 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 you know birds don't do that. You're correct. You and know, then it's gone in an instant. Like he looks away there. He's rubbing the card, and then he looks back, and it's just right. an empty window. It's actually almost more comfortable to believe that's coming out some kind of like supernatural visitor, right? That it's Dicky Moltisanti, or that it's Brendan Falone, or that it's somebody yeah. saying like, Chris, it's not too late. Just get out right now. Yeah. Oh, too late. You burned the card. You made the promise. You pricked your finger. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this question that Jordan brings up where you were thinking like, oh man, it's a bad, like, get out, is also interesting and 
we have to be specific here about Chris because Chris, unlike a lot of the other characters, is he's a younger man, and we have seen in the la- in the past couple of seasons, particularly I think in D Girl in season two, Chris considers another path. Mm. So mm. that then after the process where he comes back, the shooting happens. He has now rededicated himself to this life, but then this omen. Or the idea of this omen at least prompts this reflection, I think, of something else. I so agree. And, and pertinent to this episode's themes, right? I, this show is quite unkind to its young men, yeah. right? That really is the overarching theme of, of this episode, Fortunate Son, right? Um, that Chris could have had some other life. That is always going to be lurking for him. And it's not the first time, or, nor the last time, that the show is going to have us, you know, tackle this. Uh, and, and come back to, to consider this. But, um, yeah. I'm glad you also brought up Chris's experience in season two, Paul, because I think that's relevant here to the conversation, whether we believe there was a physical bird outside that window or if it was a manifestation of Chris's anxiety or yearning to get out of this, but feeling kind of stuck in a, in a sense. Given his experience in season two, his visiting of hell, his brush up against the supernatural, Chris, more than anybody in that room, might be more prone to... A message like that you know what i mean he might be more sensitive to the sight of this ill omen looming outside the window yeah well and the meta theatrical reading of this scene is that he feels like he is being watched mm-hmm. it could be by supernatural forces it could be by literally us the viewer yeah right i mean there's something outside of himself that's encouraging him to evaluate this moment mm. um and and we see the fallout from that in this episode uh, St. Peter, by the way, among other things... I was going to talk about St. Peter next. Good job, Paul. ...is the patron saint of butchers. <laughs> good luck, Mr. Satriali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Yeah, good. I'm glad you mentioned that, Paul. I was going to bring up St. Peter and ask uh, about the significance of that, so I'm very glad. Very awesome. So, yeah, they're at uh, Vesuvio. We get this conversation with Paulie. Kind of makes it sound appealing. Hey, all you got to do, give me my four grand a week, or six six Gs a week. And uh, you kick up to me, I kick up to Tony, and on it goes, this thing of ours. Chris has been doing well with the sports book. He's like, all right, this is it. This is, this is kind of where I'm getting put for now. He's working for Pauly. Seems good enough. And then we meet a new character. We meet Johnny Sack's boss. So the way this works for the mob people out there, or the people who are paying attention to the structure of the families or whatever, New York has five mob families. Tony deals primarily through Johnny Sack, who's sort of an emissary underboss to one of the five family bosses. And we meet his boss, Carmine Lupertazzi. He has a very funny conversation with Tony here about epilepsy, and he asks about his, his, his spells. Tony says they're not spells. There's no stigmata these days. A lot of fun malapropism. Yeah, the malapropism very funny. <laughs> For Christ's sake, Julius Caesar was an epileptic. <laughs> Not an epileptic. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do a little tut-tut to the Sopranos here. Uh, they introduce new characters in a very realistic fashion, but because it's realistic, it's actually very unforgiving for a new viewer. Mm. So for me, who's looking at this basically for the second time ever in life, not having seen it for 20 years, uh, it is so hard for me to be like, oh, wh- who is this? Did we meet this person before? Oh, Carmine. Mm. Oh, I bet Chris and Paul know who this is. Who is this? Yeah. Right? You only get a general sense, like, okay, Tony really respects this guy. 
It's Johnny Sack's boss. I, is this the New York boss? I don't know. He's a New York boss, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, the Sopranos universe follows that there are, and they mentioned this a couple times in various points. Not yet, though. Like you said, they just drop them in. Yeah. And we're made to accept them. They did it with Ralphie. It's what the show does. You know, you got to kind of take it or leave it. There is going to be that moment of, oh, but then the show is so good, you quickly accept it, and you understand the characters well, as time yeah, No, no, to be clear, it's not a misstep. I'm not yeah, saying, yeah. like, the show's being lazy or disorganized or something like that. I'm just saying, like, as someone looking at this with new eyes who is so invested, you're like, oh, wait, who is this? Did I did I meet them? Because after yeah. a while, some of these older men, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. this guy has glasses, this guy also has glasses, this guy has white, wispy hair, so does this guy. Have I met him before? Is this the rat who's also working with the government? It's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. and these guys kind of amalgamate after a time. Yep. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. But this is Carmen Lupitazzi. Yep. The, the Sopranos universe has, like our universe, a smaller mob family in Jersey and five main bigger families in New York City. And what we're led to believe in this universe of Sopranos, and I'm not entirely sure if this is how it works in the real world. It may. But one of the five families kind of oversees the Jersey family. And we're led to believe that Carmine is the boss of this family. And Johnny Sack is sort of the the bishop piece. He's the go, you know, or, or the, the 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 underboss. He goes and right, gets right. stuff done. He interacts between the two. I guess they wanted to, so they could briefly show uh, that the guy outranks Johnny Sack. He tells him to answer the fucking thing. Yeah, exactly. Answer the cell phone. Um, I guess this guy could be a bit of a father figure to Tony. He's old enough to be Tony's dad. He is not a threatening or impending father figure. He's mm. kind of like a. Sweet but curmudgeon old guy. Yeah. So I think it's a fun irony that what he points to is something serious. Tony doesn't like that he even knows about this. Yeah. And he wants his privacy. And it compels him to go to Melfi in their next session and insist that this starts showing results. And yep. it does. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that Melfi scene in a second because it's so good. And yes, again, I'll always honor our no-spoiler policy, but... There are moments coming up in the show with Carmine Lubertazzi that endear me to him. Uh, we'll talk about it. He has a lot of very funny lines. Uh, this actor is also uh, in a lot of gangster stuff. If you look back, I think he's even in Goodfellas too. I think as well, Goodfellas as well. Uh, so yeah, but we get this quick scene after this with Janice, <laughs> and this is sort of a dear lord. Aw, aw, a, a subplot in this episode that just makes you groan. That give you the Janice groan. Um, she's staying with Tony very clearly. Her presence drives him nuts. She gets exactly what she wants just by existing in Tony's space. Tony arranges Svetlana to get out of the the house, and she's eating a sandwich. She references her nineteen year old fiance Drew, who can go all night. Gross. Ew. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so he basically says you know hey let's get you back uh back over there and she's like great okay another irony is that he's doing this to get rid of this family burden yeah and indirectly this will lead to him looking at a lot of family history because after janice swipes the leg he goes over to the house and that's when he looks at the meat yep yep it also is classic janice in that tony thinks he's getting her out of his hair and the result is only going to further complicate his life. Very funny stuff. Janice is just so gross and funny. And then we get uh, the Ufa Pizzeria. 
<laughs> Another first appearance here. The guy with Chris is a new character named Benny Fazio. We've not been introduced to him, but he's uh, going to be sticking around for a little bit. Played by Max Casella, yep. who I know best from Newsies, mm -hmm. the musical. He played oh, racetrack when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was exciting. I like Max Casella. He's, he's one of these faces that just pops up here and there on TV and in, in movies and things like that. He's a funny kid. Well, funny I mean, a, adult man now, but funny kid. Yeah, yeah. So he's with Chris, and he's a character that we're going to see more of as time goes on. But So, yeah, three new characters dropped on us. One, we, Two of them we didn't even really hear speak all that much. Eugene Ponacorvo, who's the guy being made with Chris. Benny Fazio, who's with Chris. And Carmine Lupertazzi. So they're dropping in new characters, as is normal when you start a new season. You expand the world of the show a little bit. And we have Dino in this scene as well. Is yes. He, is he new? Jackie Jr.'s friend Dino. Okay, yes. Right. Uh, so another... Just the, new, the new Brennan Falone. Yeah. Yeah, the new putts <laughs> that's kicking around with Jackie Jr. Right. Uh, I wrote the line, Speaking of zeros with shoes, here's Jackie and Dino. <laughs> <laughs> They, uh, Greek, everyone's happy for Chris's kind of, we're getting, it's like sort of this Chris going to the old neighborhood and everyone's like, hey, congrats, he's, he's got his button, everyone, so the world knows about it, Chris is a made man. Right, extremely overdressed for this pizza parlor, yeah, something yeah, you would yeah. only do performatively. Yes, exactly. Right. I wrote down, anytime a character on The Sopranos utters the line, I don't want to sound like an asshole, if after that their lips are moving, yeah. they're <laughs> sounding like an asshole. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah he really can't be seen in a place like this anymore. Very funny. Overshadowed by what a fucking little shitbag Jackie Jr. is. Yeah. So when I do my notes, the first thing I, I try to figure out is I write down like A, B, C, D, E, however many plots there are. And I for this thing, I just wrote Jackie Jr. is a dick. That's that's the plot. <laughs> uh, they, yeah, he's he's just... Ugh, you don't like him. He's a he's he's the very definition of like everything that Tony and the guys like don't like about the younger generation. But he's also in a different situation than some of the other younger characters in that he's riding the line. He's at Rutgers. He's not at Rutgers. He's dropping out. He's in. This is why he's actually more interesting than the others we've seen of this type, right? right. Uh, you know, fucking Chip and Dale from last season, Matt and, uh, Matt I already forget the other Matt one. Matt and Sean. Matt and Sean, thank Chip you. Or, or Brendan Falone, right? Um, Jackie is actually, to me, even in this, you know, early iteration of him, is more like a Christopher, yeah. right? Where, yeah, he's annoying. He's an absolute dick in this scene. He's, he's an asshole, disrespectful. You know, we'll, we'll get much more of him very soon. But also, it's like, yeah, he has the Rutgers angle, right? We know that he is, uh, you know, obviously Jackie's son, so friends of the family. It's like, it, it kind of puts the question out there, underneath these scenes, can this young man be redeemed? Yeah. Right? And watching this as an older viewer, right, who works with kids, I'm kind of like, okay, you know what? Kids, to some extent, they're supposed to be assholes. Yeah. Right? Kids are, I'm sorry for kids that are listening, Kids are supposed to be stupid. Yeah. They're supposed to make some mistakes. They need someone who's going to sit them down and be like, you're fucking up. Yeah. Let me tell you how you're fucking up and let's see if you can fix it. So the challenge is out there. Can someone fix Jackie Jr.? I agree wholeheartedly. And I had an asshole phase as a kid as yeah. well. There was yeah. a, a summer theater camp I did uh, for many years. And the first year... Nobody really liked me. I was a, a obnoxious. I had like a friend or two, but I was like kind of obnoxious. The older kids in the camp were like, what the fuck is this kid? Yeah. And uh, I just rubbed people the wrong way. And then, I don't know, I did a lot of growing up. Two summers later, everyone was like, dude, you've, you've come a long way. Kids are dicks. Kids yeah. are dicks. I did things as kids I think about now. 
you know, throwing snowballs at cars, which is a very dangerous yeah. thing to do. Like, you do dumb, stupid, dangerous right. shit as a kid. And either you're going to come around to it yourself, which yeah. is rare, by the way, yeah. or an older kid or an adult is going to come into your life, they're going to put things in a way you understand, and it's going to change you. Mm-hmm. And that's what you hope for. This is so important, the points you guys are making, because, I mean, the title of the episode is Fortunate Son. We're yeah. dealing with either biological sons or sons in spirit, like mm-hmm. taking someone under your wing, that sort of thing. And, I mean, Jackie Jr. mentions it right up front. The His his actual father had passed away, and the guy who had taken him under his wing was Richie April. Yeah. So we see, so he's been... <laughs> So now he has seemingly very little to no guidance, and the guidance he had before was not good. And now we're getting into this weird phase where the guidance he's going to get, though it might in fact be the right advice, is coming from the wrong place. It's Tony Soprano saying, you don't want any part of this, mm. even though I represent like what you're going after. Yeah. Um, in a weird way, Johnny Soprano's advice was more consistent, mm. because it was like, Come along with me. Mm. It's it's troubling in a way to watch, even though I do think it's funny how the kid can be a dick. Because I feel weird about where, as Jordan said, it's not kind to young men, yeah. where a lot of the young men in this show are going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just hope he learns his lesson and never disrespects the pizza parlor again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line, don't disrespect the pizza parlor. It's just a funny, ridiculous line. Like three seconds later, I can't be seen in a place like this. <laughs> yeah. Christopher, not much better in this scene, but again, he's, what, two seconds older than Jackie, so yeah. whatever. Also, great name of a pizza place. I actually, Oof, normally wow. normally I'm good with my like North Jersey uh, locations. I actually don't know if that is actually called the Ufa Pizza Restaurant. I hope it is. But if it is, yeah. I want to I I go there. Great. Yeah, yeah I, I want to go there. So then we get to this uh, therapy scene that you referenced earlier. Tony basically sits down. Is very this. I, I love this scene because especially coming off of season two, where their scenes had no direction. They were both straying and lost, and they weren't even together for half of it. They're both very direct with each other here. Yeah. They're back on track. Tony's like, this has got to show results or end. Melfi fucking answers him directly. Here's what's going on. Here's how to treat it. Very cool. I like this this start. Enough fucking around is the quote I wrote about this scene. Yeah. He expresses... <laughs> forgive me, audience. He says, my daughter brought home a black... Melfi lets that go yes. for the for the sake Tony's, of the, Tony's words. Yes. <laughs> for Melfi lets that go for the sake of the larger issue here. At this point, uh, he talks about what happened when he passed out after the Noah incident. That was very ugly and terrible. Every time he describes this scene, which happened at the beginning <laughs> of the last episode, yeah. right. it gets worse. Yeah, it yeah. becomes more of a catastrophe in his mind. Yeah, it's like. That they, like, oh, they were, like, snuggling on the couch together. Yeah. He never saw them on the couch together. Yeah. But it keeps getting worse because when he... He's imagining it. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. he's doing the Libya thing in his mind. It keeps getting more and more of a horrible show. Dare I say it's a big fucking opera brought on by repressed rage? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. At the end go. of the last season, I think it was almost like a throwaway line, Melfi's talked about, like, how the the racist attacks on Indian food are just a distraction. <laughs> I'm not letting Tony off the hook for, like, calling the kid buckwheat or whatever. And the Uncle Ben imagery, isn't this just actually a distraction? Actually, mm. what the, the, the trigger, if you will, we're going to get to is the meat. Yeah. Which is, which is going to become the therapeutic focus. Yep. 
So Tony speaks frankly. Melfi's ready to commit. You, you panic attack disorder. We're going to treat it this way. She gets him talking. He elicits the trigger. We're on the cusp of something. I, as an audience member watching this the first time, I, I was very intrigued by this. Ooh, what is what is she on to here? And then Tony gets the call. It's his busy season. We're going to hear that quote several times this episode when Tony gets pulled away from something. And then when he comes back, they lost the momentum. Well, yeah, there's, there's some disappointment here. Yeah. Tom, this is a huge revelation. And as an audience member, you want to hear much more about it. This mm. is, you know, really good stuff. Tony's not even really that interested in it, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and when he's on the phone, they're they're talking football. Yeah. They're talking bets, and Tony admonishes whoever's on the other fo- on the other side, make sure he's good for it. And we're gonna come back to why Tony always verifies that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. So then we get Casa Soprano. We got a nice long sequence at Casa Soprano dinner scene. I mean, at this point in the show, the writers must know these characters so well. These actors, these dinner scenes must like write themselves. You just put all these people in a room and the amazing shit that comes out. But we well, we first get a little scene of Chris fucking up at the betting parlor. I am admittedly, I'm usually pretty good about like the gangster schemes, and I've read a lot about real gangsters and the shit they pulled. Sports betting is something I actually don't know very much about. I'm not clear on the specifics, but the bottom, the, the point is Chris Royally fucked up and owes a lot of people money. Right. So, uh, I know a bit. I, I actually think it's just simply that uh, th- there's no angle on the sports betting. It's just, yeah, yeah. Th- it's illegal. Right, right. So they just... And he, he, well, but he... He, Do you mean in terms of like a spread? Like, like I, yeah, I don't understand how sports betting really works. I've never done it. I'm not a huge sports fan. I like baseball. Right. But I'm not a huge sports fan myself, so I just don't understand. I don't even know necessarily what, what they mean by a spread. Well, so, and, and so yeah, the, the folks that are betting on these games are not just betting on who will win or who will lose. Yeah, That's too simple a bet. Spread, they're, right? they're betting on the spread of points between the two teams. Yeah. Between if you're, you know, if, if you win and, and then you lose, you look at the two scores at the end, and then you look at those scores in each quarter of the game or each mm. half of the game depending on what you're you're sort of betting on. Um, obviously, as we see in like movies like Casino and other big mob things, right, the folks that are running these sports betting parlors, the, the, it's the house always wins, right? They have little right. ins and outs, and they they know to... Uh, they're, they're betting on these games themselves as well, you know? Mm-hmm. So there is money flowing back and forth, and you're hoping that your action, your money, is spread across enough of these games that you're not too exposed into one game that might go poorly for you, but Chris has not found the rhythm yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, or perhaps he had the rhythm previously and the Blackbird has fucked him up. Yeah. Johnny Boy in the flashback says to Tony, another important quote, you should never gamble. Says yeah, twice. But as you said, Chris, isn't this whole life a gamble? And as Jordan pointed out, that we're also placing bets, we're placing bets on how this is going to operate so that we can come, that we can actualize this idea that the house always wins we can come out on top but yeah it is a gamble as we say chris learns this harsh lesson uh even though paulie isn't running the school and uh the other thing i just want to say briefly i loved in the overall the imagery how football and betting operated as a kind of religion or ritual in this world not only that aj is playing it but they watch it they call it their busy season literally like as if they work at Macy's during Christmas. <laughs> right, yeah. I love that sort of thing. And it just, it, it character it added so much character. Um, to, it added so much vibrancy to the episode. So I, I was just delighted uh, with it. I agree, I agree. So Tony's asking Chris over the grill, grill full of meat, 
no coincidence, that's kind of what we cut to right after the Melfi scene about meat. AJ comes out, mom's waiting for the meat. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're talking, you know, to turn that one link there. Ralphie swears in front of AJ, so we see Ralphie at the homestead. And Ralphie still, I, I always will comment on costumes, boy, this guy's always very suspiciously nicely dressed. Yes. Right? What is that? What is that? I don't know. <laughs> I'll keep commenting on it because it only gets worse. But uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. No, wardrobe's important, man. It's, 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 uh, well, it's just like, like, what are you trying to say about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. The expression is clothes make the man. What kind of man is being made of Ralph Zeffaretto, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Chris says he had a light setback, nothing to worry about. Tony seems kind of amused. It's a very father-son kind of thing. You know, son's starting out the new job, and you know, Tony's asking how it's going, and he's he's had his knocks a little bit. Tony tells Chris to watch out for Jackie. Make sure, you know, Tony doesn't want him involved in this shit. He promised his dad. We find out that Ralphie and Rosalie April are a thing. They're dating, uh, and they're here at the Sunday dinner together. Jackie's running late. They're talking about how disrespectful it is. One of my favorite, like, they slipped this one in on you, but uh, Rose Rosalie tells everyone, you know, Ralph had to drop out of school to take care of his sisters. And Carmel's mother says, you'd never know it. <laughs> <laughs> she rules. Yeah, she, just very funny. So, AJ, any hotties, the cheerleaders? Yeah, there's no cheerleaders in freshman ball. What a little dick. Yeah, I know. She she like like skews fuck skews the shit out of her for asking. Yeah. The dinner scene is great actually here because I mean I know it's not a Robin Green Mitchell Burgess credit, mm. but I'm sure they worked on it. It like it stitches together a lot of different stuff happening in this episode. Yes, and it does it really well. There's a lot of laughs here. Um, of course, Chris struggling we get that ralphie's a pig albeit well-dressed one yep um (laughs) stuff with uh adriana and aj not being able to deal with anybody's projection Mm, of what's going on yep um onto him meadow is still icing tony out the whole thing jackie's being a prick the whole thing Carmel mentioned something about Tony being outside, and she says burning a cross. Uh, so clearly she's gained a little bit more information since we last saw her. Yes. And um, AJ's funny. He's bored. Everyone's here. It's really boring. Jackie calls in. He's very rude to Rosalie, a character we love. So fuck him. Uh, he just says, fuck it. Doesn't, just doesn't show up. Chris brings Paulie four Gs in the back of Satrial's. Four G's. It's not a bad. If someone hands me an envelope of four G's, I'm I'm pretty happy about it. But it's not it's not acceptable. I'm not. The minimum running, was yeah. six. Is six six grand minimum. Ten percent. And I love that line where he tells him, you know, six grand that could be a lot or a little. That depends on you. Right. And Paulie uh, doesn't doesn't cut him slack. I mean, well, he does in a sense. He's like, I'm going to give you a couple days. It's going to cost you another two grand as a reminder not to fuck it up. I thought fair. Oh, I agree. And this, that's as fair as it gets in this lifestyle. Yeah. We could have slapped the shit out of him. And, you know, like, on the right, I mean, yeah. on the merits, this is this business is not forgiving of mistakes or what Davy Scatino in the second season called stutter steps. Mm-hmm. The other intriguing factor for me here is the following: Chris comes in and Polly is sleeping on a cot. Yeah, and then goes up and has a toothbrush at the place. I guess Mr. Satriali stopped asking questions about people hanging out there when, you know, they cut off his pinky finger. <laughs> yeah. But the other, I mean, Tony said in that opening with the making ceremony, this life comes before your wife and your children and your mother and your father. Other than the business, Polly has what? Nothing. Yeah, this Nothing. is Polly's life. This is the life. So, of course, it's a bit easier for Polly. He's meeting, this is the, this is the life, and that's all he's known. 
and he's settled into it. So I thought that was a good juxtaposition with Chris, whose attention is, by many things, pulled in different directions. Well said. Then we get this interesting scene. Tony has that sit-down moment with Jackie. He invites him to lunch at Vesuvio. Jackie's wearing this fucking asshole pair of sunglasses that (laughs) then perches on his hair. I love this moment because Tony tells him, lose the glasses. This is a little, like, kind of inside Sopranos thing. There's one character on the Sopranos allowed to wear sunglasses. Do we know who that person is off the top of your heads? Tony? Christopher. Christopher. Christopher has worn sunglasses at many points in the series, and he's the only one David Chase and the, the showrunners were like, he can wear sunglasses. Don't know why. Maybe it's just an aesthetic thing or whatever. Not quite sure the exact reason, but no one on the show was ever allowed to do sunglasses. So I love that Jackie comes in. He's breaking, like, a, this is meta, but he's like kind of breaking one of the rules of the show, and Tony's like, lose the glasses. Not not happening. So that's <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's like, it's, so when you see a character wearing sunglasses on The Sopranos, it's jarring. He puts them up on his head. Tony's eating this delicious linguine with clams. Uh, he's wearing a suit. He's presenting. He's kind of peacocking. He's show like, you know, I'm the daddy. I'm the boss. He's mad at Jackie late again for this lunch meeting, being very disrespectful. And Tony, he's worried about Jackie. And he feels like maybe Jackie needs to let go of his mentorship with Richie before any progress can be made here. So Tony drops the story on him. Your Uncle Richie was a rat. He's, he's putting on a show here. He's performing. He does a great job at it. Uh, and, you know, Jackie's probably very much concerned with reputation and what everybody thinks. And when Tony says to him, he's like, ask anybody. You know, this is the story on Richie that he's in the Witness Protection Program. For whatever it's worth, it seems, while initial there's an initial violent reaction there, he seems to accept it. So maybe... Tony can move forward from this. Yeah, there's also a kernel of truth in what Tony tells him because he actually tells him that, you know, I didn't kill him. Yeah. Right? Which is actually true. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yes. You know. Yes. He does that very cool thing where he speaks the truth in a way that is deceitful. Like, yeah. You know. Not, yeah, so he's like, I know you, on the other hand, he'd be an asshole to believe, not to, to believe me, but I didn't. Yeah. And he's I love, right. I love the way... Uh, Gandolfini plays the scene in mm-hmm. general. There's one point where he's trying to get Jackie's attention and, and he, taps. he slaps the fork on the plate. Yeah, Very yeah. good. Look at me. Jackie is also coming into the scene. He's an embodiment of what Artie is talking about at the beginning of the scene when he comes out and essentially I think talks about how they had spoiled their kids a bit. We gave them too good a home life. They didn't mm-hmm. want to leave the nest. They didn't want to go away. But they're closer with us than we were with our parents. Is that such a bad thing? And I think that's the conundrum of this episode. Mm in some way, is that there wasn't, there's some, there's actually a bit, there's an emotional bridge between them, but it's a bit more complicated now. Yeah. Certainly it is with Tony and Meadow. So then this scene plays out, yeah, I love that Tony is lying, at least in part, it's the truth that he didn't kill him, it's a lie that he's a rat, is it the best thing for him to, but it might be the best thing for him to think, yeah, I love this whole, the way this whole sequence plays out. There's, this is more of just my personal opinion, but I wish Tony had the ability in this moment to guide him away from being a doctor, even though he doesn't want him to be in the gangster lifestyle. I also don't think he's, from what I know of him, fit for to be a, a doctor either. Right. And he's like, it's hard, I don't want to do it. I wish Tony, I think Tony might have, ha- might have more long-term success with Jackie had he said, hey, you know, listen, what do you want to do then? Like, let's let's figure something else out for you. But it's kind of like he just sticks to the old, this isn't what your dad wanted, and, 
you know, he's uh, he's kind of playing up the negative. It's sort of like, well, you're not doing this. <laughs> so <laughs> go back to Rutgers. Right. Well, yeah. Jackie Jr. is a project, and it's like, who's going to take this project on, yeah. if anyone? Unfortunately, up to now, it's been Richie, mm-hmm. which, good Lord. Right? <laughs> um, Tony kind of has his hands full. I mean, he's the boss of the family. He has to raise his own son. Christopher yeah. is his surrogate son. He already has enough young men <laughs> kind of attached on to him that need him for guidance. And as we know, because we know Tony intimately, he's not in a position to be really guiding anyone very well either. Yeah. Right? So unfortunately, Jackie's going to end up in the hands of Ralph Cifaretto, as we'll soon see. And obviously no spoilers, but those are not good hands. Yeah. Yeah. We bring back a character in the next scene from Season 1, Episode 4, Meadowlands. Tony is watching football oh, with Mr. Piacosta. Piacosta. AJ almost had the, the kind of baseball field yes. fight. In, in Though I didn't see Jeremy on the field. They never showed Jeremy. Okay. And we, I guess we have to assume he's playing. Yes, Mr. otherwise Piacosta why would Mr. There. Piacosta be there? Right, well, Jeremy is in um, the first episode of the season, Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. Oh, that's right. And Piacosta, he comes yeah, up yeah, yeah. with the uh, jersey. The football jersey, yes. that's right. What first intrigued You're right. AJ You're right. to... Join the football team. Yeah, so they seem to have made nice, and uh, they're. But uh, this is a fun scene. I uh, like the way they did it, Tony. They're they're just yakking about football, but I love how fired up Tony is. He mentions in one of the previous seasons, you know, somebody's like, "Look at you, Tony. We're girls, girls soccer." And he's like, "What do you want? My only son's a couch potato." Tony loves AJ playing football. This is great. He's cheering. He's happy. He's rooting AJ. Get in there. AJ makes this great play. He catches this fumble. They slow the action down. You're wondering, oh my God, was he hurt with something? No, he, he made the big play. And they cheer, and it's great. And Tony's so excited. He's got his arm around him. He's talking football strategy with him. He wants him to throw his Nintendo out the window, go out for a couple <laughs> dogs. He wants to reward him with meat. Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. Yep, yep. Meat is, the, oh, meat is all over this episode. And a little touch, and then I want to just go back and talk about this football thing for a second, but... Little touch that this show, again, it's all about the little touches that make something good great. They go out for dogs after his football game, and in the next scene we see Tony, he's walking in the back of the bing, he's got a mustard stain on his shirt. Come on, that's great. That's that's attention to detail. But yeah, that's so, something I would, I would spill the mutard. Because I always like a little mutard oh, on the old... Oh, uh, if I have any dog. kind of shirt that is light-colored, it's over. I can't even eat that day or it's done. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't keep light-colored clothing. But yeah, thoughts on AJ as a football player and how it lights up Tony and how he seems, uh, you know, for the first time, this is one of the first few times we see Tony really into something that AJ's doing. And The other reason I thought of Down Neck was, of course, in part the episode itself, but also one of the memorable parts of our first season, I thought, was when we recorded Down Neck and Jordan talked about AJ as a gray kid. Mm-hmm. And I think AJ has started to fill in some color since then, however, this is still, I think it seems way too much for him. It's pretty clear throughout the episode, if it wasn't clear enough, then the ending will make it absolutely clear, that, again, these people projecting these ideas onto him is something that's too much. Yeah. Jackie is Jackie Jr. is having a hard time uh, figuring out his path in life. Other folks see him as the heir apparent, right? What is the future of this guy? Tony doesn't want him to be part of the life, Right. Tony says, I don't want that for my own son. I don't want AJ to be part of the life either. He says this to Jackie Jr. We see him at the football game, and it turns out AJ is actually doing quite well. Uh, He makes a valuable, you know, play in the game. Ends up, I think, you know, winning the game. 
Tony wants to celebrate with him. He is emerging from, as Paul says, you know, from, from his grayness, right? This could be something special for AJ, whereby he could use it as the fulcrum by which to define himself, mm -hmm. finally. And uh, I can only feel sad because I'm looking at AJ. If I were to just look at Tony, I'd be like, this is great. Yeah, yeah. Wow, AJ's finding himself. But I'm looking at AJ, and this kid's not happy. You know, he does not feel triumphant. He seems lost. Mm -hmm. I think he is starting to realize that he does not know his track, his place, his path, as to how it also relates to his place in the family and his father. You know, he doesn't know what this future is. Yeah, it's... To, it's, the, point, uh, to it's, the point where he gets... Worrisome, yeah. yeah. To the point where he gets upset when Tony mentions a quote that he very well, very much did say in one of the previous seasons about going to Harvard or West Point. He right. denies it, he gets a little crabby about well, it. Well, I think he's actually a little embarrassed, too. Yeah. Because now that he's a little older, he realizes, like, oh, really smart people go to those schools. Yeah. And that was just something I had said, and I, I have to backtrack off of that. Bunch yeah. of freaks, right? He yeah. Pulls you out. Yeah. yeah. So they have this family dinner. Carmela makes sure that they're all having dinner together when Meadow leaves. Lily and I, watching the episode together, mentioned your talk about graduation being like the last year thing, and and that mm -hmm. felt very real and connected to that. It's like, no, we're still the family that's going to all get together, and they're yeah. trying to maintain some familial normalcy with Meadow being gone. So no. I like that. I think I that's think a very real thing. Yeah, it's a nice irony, too. I think that Meadow and AJ, both teenage kids, when they were living together, they they sniped at each other. They maybe didn't get along too great. Now Meadow's gone, and any excuse to talk to her on the phone yep go see her hang out with her especially to get away from all these people who are like living out their various ideas on aj he wants to go <laughs> and get away i love mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. yep we get a couple rapid fire scenes right after this dinner scene meadow calls she doesn't want to talk to tony and she asks his mom there three times hands the phone over to aj he walks off this thing with meadow is starting to frustrate tony you can see it on him and then we get this quick scene Janice is staying at the house. It's kind of like Svetlana's last uh, night at the house. Janice <laughs> is staying there. And she approaches her. And to me, because we know who Janice is, obviously manipulative way. She asks about the records and giving the records back. and But, you know, she presents it in a way that Svetlana might think she's softening up and, and asking nicely. She pulls her leg off. We haven't seen... We know she's one-legged, but we haven't actually seen her pull the leg off and sets it next to her bed. Intercut in this moment, Chris is panicking. It was that fucking bird. He's looking for shit to sell. He, it's this frantic, upsetting scene. He's scrambling to get these last two grand for Paulie. He shoves Adriana. <laughs> he bought a Range Rover. He can't afford it. He's looking for that bracelet he got her. And that if Adriana's moment... mother didn't need to pay for her hysterectomy. I'm sure giving money to Christopher would be her first choice. <laughs> what a gentleman he is right and uh, the beeper goes off he just says <laughs> fucking christ and grabs his forehead I, I felt that in my soul that's oh, just yeah. good acting just how you can imagine that pager's been going off every 10 minutes until he calls back and he's just had it you said it 24 hour call yeah oh yeah all the time then we get the morning and um <laughs> the leg is gone great way that this is set up it's a panning shot across the room yeah. As Svetlana's waking up, and it seems very deliberately there's one side with a bigger lamp, one side with a smaller lamp, and it's like, do we realize just a couple seconds before she does that the leg is not there? Yeah. And then her hopping off. I love all the... I, I've no, I didn't think of this until this time. I think one of the reasons I'm so delighted by these storylines with Svetlana and Janice in particular <laughs> is that 
Svetlana, in spite of the fact that she can't speak English nearly as well as she can, as she's comfortable with in her native Russian, we, we see her speaking on the phone in that language, in spite of that capacity with English, she's still more concise and direct than Janice, who has grandiloquence, but it's all hooey. Yeah. So the reason these two are so fun together in these little moments at the graveyard in the last uh, episode, this one... No spoiler, but you can tell by the way this all wraps up. This is not the end of this storyline, so future episodes. The reason these two characters are fun together is, I think I wrote this down, Svetlana is no nonsense. Janice is all nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so it's a natural bleep. Yep. She just has this like blunt Russian cynicism about her, and Janice is probably like everything that's wrong with entitled, manipulative, passive-aggressive Americans, and, you know, it's just, that's just, that's built right into it. The actors are really great. These two do such a nice job together. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever paused to think how much these records could possibly actually be worth? <laughs> It's more that she can't have them, right? Right. That's got to be it. What could these records really be worth? Can she even get $1,000 out of this? I don't think so. I doubt it. No. I mean, they'd have to be like in maybe pristine condition, unopened. Right. You know, yeah. I think if they really were worth something, right, beyond the fact that maybe Svetlana would just really authentically like to own them, I think she probably would have sold them already herself. Yeah. Right? But she hasn't. She still has them. I don't think they're worth that much. I think it's more just that Janice was told she couldn't have something and she got a couple bucks out of it, right? Yep. You know, the whole family is criminal, but Janice will literally steal the gold fillings out of your teeth. She really will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. I like that. She will. Hey, church bells. It's a Sopranos podcast tradition at this point. That's right. And things have gotten really bad for Chris, this kind of frantic Chris energy. I mean, he's beating up a drug addict on in some back alley for 300 bucks. Yeah. That's low. You just got made. This is like the shit he shouldn't be doing now, right? Yeah. But he is because he's, he's chasing it now. Well, whenever a guy starts off by saying, I ain't using, I ain't using, (laughs) good indication that you're dealing with a drug addict. Yep. Uh, Svetlana calls Tony over to talk about this leg. She has to use this, uh, Irina's there. She has to use this old piece of shit in Russia. Just when we think we're done with Irina. Yep, yep, nope. Uh, She's there. She's speaking to Tony, and I don't see why we can't be friends. That's laughable. You know, she almost killed herself uh, when they broke up, so... Yeah, I think it's uh, pretty apparent, but she's young and she's in a different mindset. Is this where she mentioned she is marrying someone else? Yeah, she says she's engaged. Right, which sounds completely like... I mean, it might be true, but it, uh, very flimsy. Yeah, yeah exactly. we haven't seen her since the end of season two, so we... Nope. Yeah. yeah, no clue who it is, if it's yeah. real, if it's a citizenship thing, who the hell knows. Right. But there uh, is some uh, Miller genius in the fridge. <laughs> when right. she calls Miller genuine draft Miller genius right yeah and uh, so he just kind of brushes off Arena calls it out like we could have had this discussion over the phone goes to get oh uh, and Svetlana admits it yeah she's like sorry like, Tony, yeah I'm know. sorry yeah <laughs> Svetlana is a very likable character very likable yeah, I, I, I actually love Svetlana yeah, yeah yeah the more I see yeah, of her the more endeared I am to her she's got a maturity and a worldliness to her that Arena doesn't have and she's very charming and funny and just well played by that actress so well she's just she's exactly the right character for the show because it's a show in which everyone is lying constantly and it's just it's actually refreshing mm. to just hear someone who like everything they say is just like no this is this is what it is yeah Yep, <laughs> you know? exactly. And I love the next sequence. Uh, I think this is kind of, in many ways, even though this, when I think of this episode, I think of it as primarily a Chris episode. 
to me, this is the heart. This is the meat of the matter, to be uh, to, to make it a pun. <laughs> well, this is another quality that I love in this episode. I'll admit, stylistically, flashbacks are not my favorite. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily like them in shows. I don't. I think they can take up too much space. So a good thing, a really good thing about this flashback is it gets a lot done, and it leaves an imprint without taking up too much time. doesn't yep. need to. And what I love about the way The Sopranos does flashbacks, too, is it's not just... We're seeing something because now it's time for the audience to see it. The way they do it is Tony is rec- sees something that prompts it. And then as it ends, he's telling the story to Melfi. Yeah. So it's not frivolous. It's not thrown in because now it's time to reveal to the audience what's behind all this. It's being told. We're, we're just seeing it instead of hearing it. And yeah. we have a shorthand for the show by now. Yeah. We've been here a couple seasons. We know we're going right into therapy. Exactly. And it moves along. But a little touch right before it gets into this, she says your uh, Lana tells him, you know, your mother's meat delivery still comes every week. This is the same weekly meat delivery from Satrials that we see in the flashback. So mm-hmm. that's cool. That's a cool touch. But he opens up the Scabagool. They were talking about Gabagool earlier with Melfi. Capicola, for those of you out there who are annoyed by that. But if you're annoyed by that, hey, what can I tell you? Fuck you. No one calls it by its proper name. At least on Long Island. <laughs> no, no. I've actually... Ne- I had to look up what that actually was. I've only ever heard it referred to as Gabagool. <laughs> Matt, you have the f- I remember the first time... And this was years ago, because, I mean, I'm an older Italian guy and I love Gabagool. But I remember the first time in my life I wanted to get a Gabagool on, like, a sandwich. I didn't know how to spot it on the menu. I was like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd you be know? looking for a G. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, but it's it's spelled... You know, especially in some places even do it like Capicolo. Right, right. So it's... In fact, totally I think if you were to go to a deli on Long Island and you said, can I have... And actually to say Capicolo or whatever you want to say there yeah, instead of Gabagool, I think they'd just look at you like, oh, you're not from here, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Very true. I think it's similar out here in Jersey, too. So we get this old man Satrial flashback. These again, we've talked about this before. These actors playing Johnny Boy and Junior, very good. Yes, the, and these flashbacks, this flashback has a very different look than the flashback from Down Neck. Yeah. Down Neck has a very idealized, very bright sort of look at the past. This is grainier mm-hmm. and yeah, I I feel like a fever dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm on Johnny Boy's lap. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and Johnny Boy is uh, like manic. In this sequence, right? Both at home and at the, the butchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, we don't get much glimpses of, of these characters, but you get enough to make little assessments. And I don't think Olivia was the only adult in this family to have mental health issues. I, you know, I think it's... it's <laughs> both. Of the, in fact, Tesh mentions that he had the same kind of anxiety attacks. I think Johnny Boy's very high-strung and neurotic. And that certainly doesn't play well with a woman like Livia. So that's the kind of environment this family grew up in. And yeah, so this old man Satrial flashback. Tony is 11 here, they say. Which is, I, I, I they don't explicitly mention how old Tony is in Down Neck. But I'm, he looks like 6, 7, 8. That y- younger, yeah. And mm-hmm. so we're like 4 or 5 years later. Yeah, they, they, they did a great job casting this kid, Satrial. He's a gambling... Again, gambling is back. He owes money. They take him in back to talk to him. He's they're, he's ducking Johnny Boy. Gets his free meat delivery. Throws that up as a partial payment. He's Johnny feels like he's being back-talked. Tony sneaks in. Boom. Off with the pinky. And he's telling this story to Melfi. And she tells him that's traumatic for anyone to witness, much less an 11-year-old. And she's absolutely right. He corrects her. 
yeah. wasn't traumatized by it. Yeah, it was Exc- a rush. Accelerated. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's that was my question about for you guys. Is right. that true? I think so. It may have felt that way. I just I just I think uh, sure, I'm sure it's exhilarating, but I also don't know that an 11-year-old could properly process exactly what he's feeling. It's possible that exhilaration he felt was dread. That I mean, that's written all over the kid's face that he I don't think he can really process it. What the yeah, dad then yeah. says to him could contextualize it, yeah. which is that you stayed. Yeah. You, you didn't run like a little girl. Yeah. Sad. Sad. In this scene. This scene makes me sad where he's kind of talking to him. It's like, you know, uh, the fact that he's he's proud, I, I, I feel like uh, he should be horrified. <laughs> but he's proud of Tony for staying there and watching that and not, not running like a little girl, quote-unquote. Yeah, though Johnny Boy is just a whole different animal, right? Oh, it's a different generation. Johnny he's Boy has never hidden the fact that he's a gangster from Tony, mm-hmm. right? Like Tony has done with his own children. Johnny Boy at no point said, I never want Tony to be a gangster, right? Hmm. opposite he seemed to almost be encouraging like this is the family business this is what i do and i'm glad you didn't run away Hmm. right so tony has had like a whole different upbringing you know uh, we will hear you know uh multiple times in this show excuses made for tony he comes from a different time he he upholds different standards right uh this this part plays into that Mm -hmm. right um yeah whether he realizes or not yes he was traumatized but these feelings are complicated right and melfi is trying to get Everyone to connect this, both the audience and Tony, there is some connection between sexuality, right? Your parents' sexuality, your sexuality, consuming meat specifically, right? The food with the sexuality, violence, acts of violence, blood, the severing of limbs, right? The carnality of that, the sexual nature of that, and upholding these things as a value, Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's something all in there in that pie, right? Yes. Well said, man. It's I love that shot where he has the meat juice on his finger and she, like feeds it to her the pinky. Uh, that you know, little Barbara asks, "Can I have the end piece?" Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's he's he cut off this guy's pinky. They sent beautiful cut. He sent. Yeah. No <laughs> shit. Um, the bone standing in it. He's yeah. squeezing his wife's buns. This sexualized dance and uh. singing all of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no wonder the kid fucking passes out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Janice, a little bit older here, the casting of the girl, looks yep. more like the current Janice, right? Mm-hmm. I thought, just really good good kid casting. Yeah. I thought. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. nailed this. Oh, they were great. And, and this, this version of Johnny Boy, again, I'm going to harp on this, mm-hmm. even though we're only two seasons away from the first season when we first saw the Johnny Boy flashback, whatever, like, this five years between Tony being, like, six or seven years old versus being, like, 11 years old in the flashback now. Yeah, Johnny Boy just seems a little off right mm-hmm. uh he's he's a little manic in this flashback he's scary yeah. right a scarier guy the kid the kid is scared yeah oh yeah his dad it's the only thing that's more powerful to jordan's point about the rush the only thing that's more powerful the fear of the dad is the curiosity because the kid's told twice go back to the car but he he has to see mm-hmm. right he, he, he has to see yeah exactly four stitches ruined dinner <laughs> love that line so <laughs> yeah. an Italian American reaction yep and I wrote here that uh, and then Melfi kind of talks him through and, and, and Tony's kind of amazed that 
all this came from a slice of gabagool, and she talks about Proust's Madeleine, which is, and she explains exactly what it is. I like Tony's line, it's played for laughs, but it's, you know, this all sounds very gay. Hope you're not saying that. But <laughs> and, valuable, uh, but the, right? Because haven't we all experienced that? Biting into the cookie and having all the memories, right? We've all, this is a universal human experience that a taste will bring you back to a time and place. A taste, a smell. Sure. Yes, absolutely. You know, you, yeah. can, you can accidentally go to a restaurant and taste a spoonful of something and be like, my grandmother made this. Mm-hmm. And you actually have to sit there for a moment as your brain processes that food. Mm-hmm. There is something there. And Melfi is trying to acknowledge this. Like, this is not uncommon that yeah. food has this power. Correct. It's, I mean, in Very Tony's good. defense, Proust was kind of gay. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I wrote here that she tells him understanding root causes will make you less vulnerable to future episodes. And there it is. This is the why. If Tony understands where this all comes from and is trying to get to the bottom of these complicated feelings, she asks him to start writing things down. Yeah, to which I wrote in my notes, ha. <laughs> H-A exclamation point. Like he's going to put in any written effort into this. but i wrote here that melfi is doing great work this is melfi in top form this might be some of the best we've seen her she's really getting the bottom of it he asked for more of her she's given it to him she's in a place out of season two where she's actually prepared to do this for him and is is it looks like you know for the moment this is good work being done she says that good work so hopefully nothing happens that derails anything there then the scene where tony is watching football with aj this is a real thing. I remember, you know, I uh, when I played baseball, I'd watch baseball games with my dad, and we'd talk about sure what the plays were, what the umpires were doing, and the rules, and you, you're you supposed to watch sports when you're playing sports, so Tony's, like, kind of talking him through it. And they're going to see Meadow at Columbia. Tony, another racist comment, you know, Sambo, right? I pay for that goddamn college. And she kind of explains that Meadow is, uh, it wouldn't be a good idea if Tony were to go along on this trip, he seems kind of hurt, stung by that. I was just looking out for her. I'll protect her, protecting her from herself. I'll do that till the day I die. And Carm, she's she's like, I'm not going to tell you, you can't go. She's your daughter, but this is probably not a good idea. And Tony takes the hint, watch the game, picks up his chips, does the kind of woe is me thing. And uh, I'm a little surprised AJ wanted to go. Yeah. What do you make of that? Well, as I we said, you wanted to sit with Tony and watch football. And right. Play. Yeah. Um, it's, it's again, okay. more of that. I think the, I think for some reason, Tony loving how much AJ plays football is not, uh, making AJ feel any better about it. You know? Yeah. When the right. conversation at Columbia gets too much, AJ, like his dad gets sent away. Why mm-hmm. do I bother going anywhere? Right. Yeah. Of course the kids lost. He doesn't know. <laughs> like, go look at the kids out on the lawn and yep. think about how you don't belong. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I I love this scene because it's uncomfortable. It's real to me. There's a lot of very good acting and writing in this scene. No surprise. The dorm room scene. The dorm room scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Noah's there. Noah's a sack of shit. He he sucks. He I wrote. I'm sorry. He, yeah. He, what he, kind of manners is that? Yeah. You know. I don't like the way he 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 talks to Carmela. I certainly, I laughed out loud when he said he's looking at him, punch his fucking lights out, because that certainly wouldn't have gone well. Yeah, uh, which actually, <laughs> it also dropped my in, intelligence estimate of Noah, because Noah seems like a really intelligent kid, uh, like a show-off about it. Yeah. You didn't do two seconds of research on who Meadow's dad is? Yeah. You're going to punch Tony Soprano? Mm-hmm. Okay, good luck with that. 
Yeah, and again, this is what I love about the Sopranos. He can be up. What I'm saying is, he can be upset. Yeah. Tony was racist and horrible to right. him. Tony should apologize, and it should actually be up to know whether he wants anything to do with this family anymore, whether he's dating the daughter or not. Correct. But also, there's a line, right? The mom has come to visit. Can I talk to my daughter alone for a second? Only if Meadow gives me fucking proof. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of the dorm room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cocksucker. Well, it's such a tricky situation, and I think Carmela, though, doesn't handle it 100% well as far as getting Meadow to kind of meet her anywhere in the middle here. And Carmela kind of wisely bows out at the end and says, you know what, anything I say is just going to fuel this. I think that's the best move for her at that point given where everything is. But look, I Meadow was looking for a big drama here. Sure and, was. And, uh, you know, Noah is was was unfairly victimized by Tony's attitudes and the things he said. Absolutely. But also, they don't make anything simple here. This is this is somebody who's not, you know, if, if, he weren't, if he weren't racially attacked by Tony, he would be a completely unsympathetic character. Correct. Yeah. This is why you can't give idealists an inch because they'll make you do fucking therapy forever about <laughs> your privilege or whatever it is. The, this scene, in a weird way, made me more frustrated with Tony mm. in spite of the fact that he's going through various things. He can pout, as you say, and as Carmela, as it turns out, very wisely told him to stay home, he can sit there and watch the football game and Carmela has to get all the misdirected, righteous anger from these annoying 18-year-olds. So the scene is fascinating to watch, but in that way, it's, it was frustrating for me to watch because mm-hmm. Carmela can't get anywhere. She knows it's actually untenable, yeah. which is why she doesn't even really try to defend Tony. I think she tries to keep a space for him, right? He's coming from a place in time. She just gets more shit from Meadow. Mm-hmm. Meadow's just, Meadow is out for blood, which also made me frustrated because as the... The dynamic that Artie points out is one where we gave the kids too good a home life. So Meadow wants to shit on the culture that Carmela married into, but, oh, I've been craving that brajol, so I need, like, a free delivery. I was like, <laughs> what? what's going on here? Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel for... In a weird way, I felt most for Carmela just trying to... What she's actually doing is formatting trying to referee a fight between her husband and her daughter yes it mm. feels much more like trying to referee something between two of her kids yeah there's also a card that carmella doesn't play in this scene which is that once noah is gone i, I wonder why she doesn't bring this up surely it must have occurred to meadow at some point meadow you know if you get this guy in real trouble with your father your father will kill him right or or something yeah. Right, some actual real damage can be done to his actual person. Yeah. Right, his body. Uh, I, maybe that doesn't factor. Maybe Meadow knows that's a line too far. I don't. I don't know. I don't know why she feels safe to give it to Tony in this way. Mm. Right. Do you know what I mean? She knows exactly who her father is and what his business is. Mm. And yeah, Tony's being a racist asshole, and he's hundred percent dead wrong with the whole Noah situation. But this is not. I would not throw this guy in his face this way because it's going to hurt this guy, not Meadow. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I think Noah's being used as a pawn, I guess is what I'm coming to, by Meadow. That's a great He's 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 the surrogate war she's having with her parents for how she was raised and and the position she finds herself in. Noah matters even less than he probably realizes, you know? Yeah. He's not just a mixed-race kid, as it turns out. He's part... um, His family is much more connected than the Soprano family to what I'd call... The professional management class. Right, he's quite wealthy, right? And they have friends who work at 
Meadow's gonna hang out with people from NBC. Yeah. You stay within the family. Yeah. She's going outside HBO to hang out with NBC people. <laughs> Unacceptable. That's right. So yeah, then we get this. Uh, I, I like that. I, I like that analysis very much, guys. I have nothing more to add to that. But we had a very interesting little cut here of AJ waiting outside the dorm. Yeah. I like that they took this little beat. He's kind of looking at the kind of people who go to an Ivy League school like that, and mm. and they're it's a broad, international, multicultural, international yeah. group. Yeah. Uh, you know, I couldn't. Help, and he's very clearly like put off by it. He just doesn't see himself there. He doesn't feel. Like he's he's like he says calls them freaks later on. Yeah, I agree. It's like he's he's. I feel bad. I feel for him. Um, he has like you said. He's having like a crisis of what is my place? What is where is my life going? What am I doing? It's not, and it's not that this is uncommon to young men his age and what they go through. But he's a young man in extraordinary circumstances, right? He's a young man who's a part of this family. Yeah, you know, and 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 finding his place in this family. And we've talked about this many, many times on this show, the role of the son, Mm. being the only son. And that is what this episode is about, right? It's about being a son, about being an heir, finding your way, and how you will bring up the next generation. Mm -hmm. Things are starting to wrap up here. We get this scene where Janice comes back to fully move in, and... uh... She does such a shitty, transparent job of faking innocent. We meet the famous Bill. Nice guy. He is a nice guy. Svetlana comes in. I didn't think you'd have the nerve to show your face to me. And Janice's like, what? what's wrong? What do you mean? You know, just being a, such a twat waffle, to use, a, <laughs> to use an eloquent phrase. Uh, and then she drops this whole, wow. So I said, if you draw some kind of karmic connection between your, your leg being missing and the records being returned to their proper owner, wow, I can see how you got there. But classic Janice at this point, that this is vintage Janice manipulation being at the same time, just, just we talked at length last season about how Janice is very transparent in the way she's manipulative. It's not like she's being manipulative in an effective way, but yet she's still also able to get under people's skin with it too. So it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Uh, but uh, Arena offers a warning, if I may say, this cunt is going to be sorry she ever fucked with me. And Janice throws out a last little comment about the locksmith, smugly shuts the door behind her, and that's it for this for now. We'll see what happens, but uh, oh boy. I, you can only imagine. Then we get this robbery. Chris is really desperate. He he uh, goes back to, you know, Jackie. Can we do this without Dino? Jackie's like, it's my fucking idea. They rob this benefit concert for Jewel. Uh, Jewel, 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 <laughs> Jewel is doing a benefit concert. You know well, this is a benefit concert, right? <laughs> is that all there is? I'll blow your head off. <laughs> <laughs> They're wearing the screen masks. A lot of students put it on their cards, so they don't have as much cash, maybe. Um, I don't know. It, I guess it, there was it was there was a universe where it was possible this robbery went off without a gunshot being uh, given. But all in all, successful robbery. Jackie's nervous. He pisses himself in the car. Uh, Chris goes in, robs a little little casting note by the way for the observant. The guy handing over the cash who says the line, you realize you're robbing a benefit concert, is is actually Perez Hilton. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, take a second look back if you didn't notice that. By the way, this is, I think this is about as far as Jackie's going to get at Rutgers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a great point. 
And, uh, yeah, I like how Chris handles it. You know, don't move this car. Your life will not be worth shit. He gets scared. You, you worry for a second. Is he panicking? Is he going to hit the gas? But, he you know, he pisses himself, but he hung in there, which is what he tells uh, Paulie in the, in the next scene. But Chris makes it right. He's exhausted. He's burned out. He got the two grand, though. That's ultimately what, what matters. He meets Paulie, hands him his envelope, and uh, Paulie kind of lets him in on the big secret, which is, you know... He says earlier in the episode, all our concerns boil down to one. You just got to kick it upstairs. On it goes this thing of ours, but it's actually much more complicated than he was originally let on. Paulie says, what'd you think? You know, welcome to the NFL, rookie. A nice father-son moment. Chris learns the lesson, but he had to compromise himself to do it. He had to compromise his direct order from Tony and get Jackie involved because he was just that desperate. There's only so many stoners and drug addicts on the street you can beat up before you you take whatever you can get your hands on. Yeah. So in the end, you got to kick up that envelope. Crystal, we get the sense that Chris is probably going to be fine in this, but he uh, he's off to a rough start here. Uh, I love this cut when Paulie and Tony are talking about it in Vesuvio and... Paulie's like, yeah, come some slack. And Tony's mad. He gives him a call. He's, so the phone's ringing, the beeper's going off, and that, that shot of Chris just rolling over with all the blankets, yeah. sandwiching his head between the pillows is just very funny. Yeah. And, uh, When's he going to grow up? Yeah, right. Cut to that. AJ on the field. Yeah, AJ is on the field, and he's being praised by the coach. This man may have a great future ahead of him. He may be a leader. And passes out. What do we make of this? Not a good feeling. I'll tell you that it doesn't feel good. Certainly not. It's a stunning ending. It's an there's I think a bit of eye plot deliberate irony, Livia esque that he, for that moment, a lot of kids would take their helmet off. He has his helmet on, which is a good thing because his head goes right into the steel of that tackle bot. Mm. Um, that's a Livia thing, I think, with the seatbelts. <laughs> right. And yeah, I mean, it brings the the imagery full circle. It leaves it in a very tense place. There's no, like, he has just presumably had a panic attack, lost consciousness, and they're trying to wake him up. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It cuts out. Great. Um, Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks tune, Where's the Money? Where's the Money? Uh, that plays us out. Yep. So, yeah, that's it. That's Fortunate Son in a nutshell. I thought it was a great, uh, not to denigrate the first two episodes at all by saying this, but this is kind of a return to form. We're back in it. Season three is cooking. Great Chris episode, great AJ episode. You're left feeling kind of uneasy about this. We get this great connection with meat, but everything is left dangling. Very little resolves here. We're kind of like, this is one that ends. You really want the next week to to fly by so you can watch the next Mm -hmm. episode. I know I ended it uh, just dying for um, the next one, which is an episode, uh, episode four, Employee of the Month, which we're going to cover next. But, uh, you know, and then you watch that episode and you never want to watch anything else again. (laughs) <laughs> but very good, and uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. This was a, this was a, a home run for me. It hit all hit all the hit all the points I wanted it to hit. Got new characters. Our stories are moving. We're 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 having fun. Any final thoughts on Fortunate Son? Yeah. So the the title of the episode, the episode's actual title, for, Fortunate Son. Of course, I think probably reminds anybody of the Creedence song. Yep. Uh, Fortunate Son, which is a song about not being the fortunate son, right? That is what Fortunate Son is about. It ain't me. It yeah, ain't me. Very ironically, that song is always played on like the Fourth of July or Memorial Day, but like it's the least patriotic song <laughs> that you could possibly think of, right? Because it talks about the great inequity inequity in, in in America and and privilege of birth and things like that. Uh, but that is what this episode deals with. The question is, well, who is the fortunate son of these men? Certainly not Tony, not Jackie Jr., 
not AJ, not Christopher. So I guess it actually lines up exactly with the Creedence song. None of them are the fortunate sons. So who is? Uh, you know, just just an interesting thought. Very. Uh, yeah, I th and the only other thing that I could make a connection to, I mean, certainly with fortunate son, I make the connection, I guess, to, the, as you said, the great inequity and questions about patriotism and, I guess, jingoism. You know, some folks are born made to wave the flag. Right. Right? But fortunate also refers to fortune and what these guys are chasing. Which mm. The bottom line is money. Mm. Right? And so... And what and what are you going to do in order to be fortunate? You rob a benefit concert. So some of it is the the depths the the, the depths that we go to, um, in this world and what it really is to be a gangster. Sometimes it's not pretty, as we discussed right from the opening, and what kind what it actually is to be made a lot of responsibility. And sometimes it just sucks. Sometimes it's the grind, like everything else. I don't know. A lot of in important insights in this episode. Mm -hmm. A lot of dramatic stuff. A lot of good laughs. Well said, gentlemen. And with that, this has been another episode of The Sopranos Podcast. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will be back for Employee of the Month. Get yourselves ready. That's a top fiver for me. So I can't wait to talk about it with you all. Enjoy your uh, time. And have a great day. I got myself a girl.